who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Why, thank you so much for reading for us. Uh, Let me pray as we start. The unfolding of your word gives light. Heavenly Father, help us now as we hear what you have to say to us. Help us and see the light. Help us, show us, Father, show us where the light is. And in your kindness, help us, um, such wise creatures as we, as such simple creatures as we are, help us become wise, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Am I a bit boomy? I feel a bit boomy. A little bit. There we go. Hopefully that will turn me down. There we go. Do keep 1 Corinthians open um, so you can check what I'm saying is in fact what God is saying. But first of all, uh, turn back in your Bibles to chapter 12, verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 31. There There we had two mysteries laid out before us. Let me read it for you. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Two mysteries. Firstly, what are the higher gifts? Secondly, what is this still more excellent way? Uh, Last week, we learned what the most excellent way was. Chapter 13, love, pursue love. Love must infuse every use of every single spiritual gift there is. Without it, you're as bad as the pagans. Immature adults who are still in spiritual nappies like we saw today with Nick, grow up. How? 
How we exercise spiritual gifts really, really matters. That's the first mystery solved. But this week, we start to answer the other question. What are the higher gifts? Uh, What is it that we are to earnestly desire? Uh, Notice how Paul trailers this application, earnestly desire, uh, here at the end of chapter 12, verse 31. Uh, Then he starts our chapter, verse 14, verse 1 with it. And then turn back to the end of chapter 14, uh, and as he uses it again to close out proceedings, chapter 14, verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Paul really wants us earnestly desiring. That word literally means uh, to be zealous, to be zealous. Paul wants us to, uh, wants to change the Corinthians' desires and that's a tall order, tall order, because changing desires is a tricky business. So chapter 14, verse 1, is our big headline, uh, and it answers chapter 12, verse 31. And in our section today, Paul takes two gifts, just two, tongues and prophecy. That's the Corinthians' favorite and Paul's favorite, and he compares them throughout And even though it's only two examples, uh, if we figure out the relationship between these two, I think the use of all the gifts will become pretty obvious. And the comparison is almost embarrassing. Prophecy and its associated gifts are hands down the most loving gifts. Uh, And in that sense, they are better, uh, at least for what we're here for in church. Uh, So much so, that when we are gathered together as a church, if you have a choice between tongues and prophecy, it's a no-brainer. You'll choose prophecy every single time. That's the point. Prophecy versus tongues. Well, prophecy wins every time when we're together. But up front, let's just caveat. Let's just caveat. Note that Paul never says tongues are stupid or wrong. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 39, we must not forbid speaking in tongues altogether. Uh, Notice also that what this chapter can't be saying is that prophecy is more important than tongues. Uh, Just that one is more loving and better for building the church. Chapter 12 was really clear on that. We need all the gifts to make the body work. Uh, I hope we really believe that here. But before we go into lots of the details... Uh, it's time to pause for some definitions. And just by way of heads up, um, we'll spend about half our time in these definitions before moving through the text like we normally do in a sermon. Also worth saying here, even if you disagree with my definitions as I give them, it doesn't actually change what this text is saying. So please keep listening even if you disagree. Uh, This text isn't trying to define tongues and prophecy. This is just me doing my best work at squaring the circle, if you like. Uh, And defining these will serve us as we get to application later. So, what are tongues? What is prophecy? Tongues. The word tongues just means languages. But what kind of languages? Uh, Maybe a strange angelic language, which could appear to us like gobbledygook, or a recognizable foreign language. Tongues only comes up in Acts and in Corinthians. Uh, And let's consider Acts before we come to Corinthians, simply because Acts is explained and clear, and Corinthians is unexplained. 
So Acts 2, what's going on there in Acts 2? Um, it's clear. Um, it's the first sermon after Jesus ascended to heaven, and the gift of tongues meant people can speak recognizable foreign languages, literally various tongues. So no matter where you come from, you could hear and understand the gospel. What a very useful gift for the spread of the gospel around the world. Don't you agree? And it seemed to be that the tongue was immediately given. Uh, the disciples couldn't speak Egyptian that morning, yet it could in the afternoon. They just, hey presto, they knew how to speak it. I wonder if we've ever come across a gift like this. Uh, maybe not with the exact same immediacy, but some people can pick up languages potentially very, very quickly, can't they? Sometimes you hear missionaries able to pick up languages very fast, miraculously fast, you might say. Uh, I know I don't have this gift. Um, I don't speak any other language, uh, despite my three years at college desperately trying to learn Greek and Hebrew. It just isn't the gift the Lord gave me. You can ask me about my near failure in my French GCSE later on if you like. Although when I used to tour as a musician, I must tell you, I wish I had this gift. Um, it would have been incredibly useful in various countries and different cultures where they speak different tongues to be able to communicate clearly with them. It would have been really useful. So now, with that clarity of Acts 2 in our minds, uh, we need to ask, what is the tongues in Corinth? Up front, I think there is insufficient evidence to claim that this is something different. Uh, besides, why would this unique gift of tongues be located exclusively in Corinth in our Bibles? If tongues were a usual gift for every church, wouldn't you expect every, every church to have similar problems like they had in Corinth? Now, of course, tongues being foreign languages explains why it's so rare in Scripture. Uh, Corinth was the most metropolitan city in the New Testament, with multiple languages knocking around, coupled with their arrogance. Uh, you can see why this church got themselves into this unique pickle. There's more. Look at the end of verse 27. Uh, they can definitely be interpreted. Let someone interpret. So logically, the language must be known by both the speaker and the interpreter prior to the tongue being given. Or else, how can it be interpreted? How can the interpreter know that they know this particular language before it's given? In fact, in verse 5, being interpreted, verse 5, seems to be the thing which turns a tongue to a prophecy and thus builds up the church. So tongues, known foreign languages. But hang on, you might say, uh, what would you say if somebody disagreed with me? Because after all, there are many, many, many faithful Christians, brothers and sisters, who do disagree with me on this. Um, and there's lots to say. For now, all I want to say is, um, I wouldn't want to limit the possibility of God I'm giving a heavenly language for some to speak. Um, even if I don't think that that's what's being spoken about here in 1 Corinthians, of course God could give people that. Although I'd want to ask those people gently, but straight questions as to the benefit of the gift and how they'd use it around other people, both believers and those who don't believe. Uh, there'll be lots more on that later on. 
And it's worth saying, I know of lots of people actually at St. Helens who think they have the gift in a different way to the way I've put it today. At the end of the day though, uh, my big question is always this. Why, when we have the explained of Acts 2, would we not use it to understand the unexplained of 1 Corinthians 14? Of course, there are many uncertainties in this passage. Um, let me just summarize from 1 Corinthians itself what is very clear. Firstly, uh, the word tongues just means languages. Uh, secondly, that the speaker of the tongue is in a state of calm self-control. Look at verses 14, verse 28. Uh, they can choose to speak or not. Uh, nothing ecstatic here. Thirdly, that what the speaker said was intelligible to himself and could be interpreted by others. And fourthly, that the unintelligibleness comes not from the sounds, but from the hearer. So, so long as your definition holds within those clear points, then I'm really happy if you disagree with me. I'm really happy. Um, so that's tongues. That's tongues defined. How about prophecy? What's prophecy? Well, unlike tongues, prophecy is a very big deal in the New Testament. Uh, prophecy comes up over 200 times in the New Testament. Uh, lots of those references are about Old Testament prophecy. But the astounding thing is that even though clearly some things have changed between the Testaments, for example, it's, it's great that we don't stone prophets if they get something wrong nowadays. That's a good change. Uh, there are actually lots of similarities, uh, more than you might imagine. In fact, uh, Acts 2 quotes Joel 2, uh, which clearly says that in the last days, i.e. nowadays, God will pour out his spirit so that everyone, even the servants in the picture language, will be able to prophesy. Everyone can prophesy. You just need to read Numbers 11 as Moses looks forward and longs for today. Longs for today when everyone has the Holy Spirit and all are prophets. So let's boil it down. The Holy Spirit is in every believer. And we can know God fully through Jesus found in Scripture. And that means that we can speak with the same authority and the same power of the Old Testament prophets. I know what has been said by God so that I can now bring that to bear in each one of our lives. With the Spirit in our hearts and the Bible in our hands, you can prophetically speak clearly and lovingly into people's lives. So prophecy, in my mind, is speaking the truth in love. It's taking scripture and speaking it carefully and lovingly into each other's lives. A few clarifications. Um, it need not be predictive. Actually, Old Testament prophets do very little predicting and mostly bring the written word of God, the already established written word of God, to bear on their hearers' lives. Um, so there are actually great similarities there. Although prophecy could be predictive. Uh, for example, you might say, I wonder if you should use your gifts in this way in the future. That could be a predictive kind of prophecy. But it doesn't come with the, thus says the Lord. Um, that, that isn't how God speaks anymore. That's a big change that's happened between the Testaments. 
Um, so it doesn't need to be predictive in that way. Um, we must weigh prophecy. That's really important. Just look at verse 29. Let others weigh what's said. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 speaks of testing. I think that's the same thing as weighing. Uh, and we're not to stone the prophet uh, if we weigh it and they're wrong. Um, and we, see, we are to see if what they said is actually in line with Scripture. And um, what's more, we can reject a prophecy, uh, even if it's right. Uh, Acts 21, Agabus prophesies, unusually, predictively in this case, and he's right. Yet Paul ignores him and ignores the prophecy. Uh, we can reject a right prophecy. So just get, to give us an idea, here's some examples. Uh, in our church council meetings uh, recently, should we spend two million pounds doing up this building? That's quite a big question that we need to think about. What might scripture say into that? Uh, let's weigh our decisions on that. Uh, I think prophecy is what is happening after every one of our 10 a.m. meetings. Uh, one after another, verses 29 to 32, we have conversations with each other where we reveal to each other what the Lord is saying to us in light of Scripture. It probably won't be totally spontaneous, although it could be, but rather a careful, orderly, building up of the knowledge and the love of God together. It probably can't be too big a group so that lots of people are free to chip in. I think that's quite important. And so during a sermon like this isn't great times for prophesying. Uh, but I hope the sermon provokes lots of prophecy um, that comes off the back of it later. Uh, really, it's what's happening in every small, week, small group Bible study midweek. Not so much at the start, maybe when we read out verse 1 says this, uh, but later on in the studies, uh, when we're chewing on what's said and how it will change our lives. I'm actually thinking of rebranding our Bible study groups from central focus to prophecy groups uh, so that we remember why we are there together. Do we go every week to small group Bible studies with that kind of expectation, expecting each other to be prophesying what God wants for our lives today? In short, prophesying to help you put the Bible into practice. And just note the purpose of prophecy. Look at the purpose here. This is amazing. It's how God takes truth and uses it in us. Verse 3 to build up, to encourage, to console each other. Verse 19, to instruct others. Verse 24, to convict the outsider. Prophecy is what God's Spirit wants us to do because prophecy is what builds the body of Christ for eternity. Uh, that's why Paul would choose this gift seemingly over any other gift, not just tongues. Uh, why else would Paul encourage us all, verse 1, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy? It's better for the task of building the body. This gift uniquely does good to the church eternal. So that's prophecy, speaking the truth in love. And let me just remind you, uh, even if you disagree with me so far on those two definitions... I don't think that's going to matter, actually, that much as we go through the details. You might need to do some extra work to figure out pushing the logic through of the chapter um, through your own definitions, but basically what the chapter says from here on in won't change. Only the outworkings for you.
So what's the point of this chapter? The point, when we're gathered together, we've already said, if you have to choose between tongues and prophecy, choose prophecy every single time. Now that's all this is saying, choose prophecy every time. And the whole chapter explains why prophecy is better than tongues for the gathering. If you like, this section could be explained like this. Question, how do you do ministry for those inside and for those outside? Answer, maybe surprisingly for some, is the same. The same for both. Prophecy is best for both believers and for unbelievers. We'll take each in turn. Firstly, it's better for believers. Better for believers. Firstly, building. Verses two to five, every one of these verses talks about building in some way. And notice, the point isn't one builds and the other doesn't build. See, tongues are good for building. Uh, Maybe that's a surprise to some of us. It's just that tongues builds just one person, that's the speaker, and prophecy builds up everyone. If your goal is to build the church body, then prophecy is better. That's a no-brainer. So let me ask you, why are you here at the 10 a.m.? I mean, Brenda often does make great cakes, doesn't she? But why are you really here, really? More to the point, for whose benefit are you here for? Who are you coming to serve? Ask that next time you walk into the 10 a.m. See if it changes your experience while you're here. Paul thinks that the answer is never for me. Never for me but for everyone else, everyone else. Wouldn't that make an incredible church family? Imagine if we all believed that. Look down with me at verse five. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. In other words, a tongue interpreted turns it into a prophecy. It builds. Everyone will be able to get it and be edified by it. Uh, Remember, the purpose, the positive purpose in verse 3, prophecy builds, encourages, consoles. Is all our prophecy colored with those kinds of action words? Wouldn't it be a great way of speaking to each other to build, to encourage, to console each other? That's building two to five Another question is, why does prophecy build everyone and tongues only benefit the speaker? Why is that the case? Uh, answer, intelligibility, or more simply, clarity. Verses 6 to 12. Verse 6 is brutal in the logic. Um, how will I benefit you unless there's a revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? In other words, a plain word, an intelligible word, All those intelligible gifts come before tongues. They all do good to others in our meetings. Verse 7 illustrates the point. Uh, Imagine you go to a concert. Uh, You're not sure what the lifeless flute and the harp are going to play. So you listen really carefully in so you recognize the tune that they play. But they just play blah, 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 blah. Indistinct notes. How are you going to know the tune? Intelligible sounds make the music into music, according to Paul. Another illustration, verse 8, from the concert hall to the war zone. 
And the stakes seem higher here. You're a soldier, camping, fast asleep, tucked under the covers. And the bugler sees the enemy approaching on the horizon. A siege is on the way. Uh, there's not a moment to lose. He must warn the troops, or else the whole army will be slaughtered in their tents. And so the bugler puts the, the bugle to his lips, and he makes this sound. Who's going to be ready for the battle? The stakes are really high. They're all going to be killed. In fact, did you notice that he describes the flute and the harp as lifeless instruments? Why describe them as lifeless? See, both these illustrations have a deathly tone to them. I don't think that's an accident. Let's see if we can figure out by the end why he does that. Verse 9 goes straight to the point. So with yourselves. It's obvious to me that in a city like ours, uh, many will have sat in our meetings and not understood everything that's being said. Uh, foreigners are with us all the time, aren't they? And I can only imagine how horrible it is not to be able to follow along what's being said. In fact, uh, Vika here from Ukraine, who's with us this morning, been with us the last few weeks, is probably having that experience right now, isn't she? <laughs> um, but it's great that we can have here the talk translated real time. I think that's a wonderful thing. If you've ever traveled somewhere uh, where you don't speak the native tongue, then you know the experience of just listening to words without knowing the meaning. Verse 11, it makes the whole experience pointless. Uh, the literal word for foreigner in verse 11 is a barbarian. So if you don't speak English here well enough this morning to hear all the words that I'm saying and not understand them, well, I'm a barbarian to you. Uh, you don't know what I'm saying. That's horrible. Alienating. Uh, you can't connect. There's no way of understanding. I think that the Corinthians thought tongues were better because tongues were more powerful in their minds. Maybe because nobody understood them, there was a mysticism to them. Uh, surely people would be impressed by the Spirit's work and the number of tongues on show. That would be impressive and persuade people that God is really there. That couldn't be more wrong. Paul says the power of speech is in the understanding. Just look at verse 11. Uh, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, the word there for meaning is literally power. If I don't know the power of the language, then it's meaningless to me. Meaningless. Paul's right. Words hold power, ideas, and words change lives. So if you're keen to work with the Spirit, verse 12, then strive to excel in building up the church, plain, clear, intelligible words. Uh, see how the logic's being built? Uh, build, and build using clear words. So we hit the caveats, as we have it on the sheet. Although I think it's not really caveats, it's more clarifications, clarifications, verse 13 to 20. And the one who speaks in tongues should pray for the power to interpret. Uh, once that's in place, uh, then they can speak, speak clearly. In other words, if, if Vika here was here and wanted to speak in a tongue, 
she needs to pray for somebody who can speak both Ukrainian and English so that it can go from a tongue to a prophecy and so build us all up. Or she needs to pray, maybe, that she can articulate what she's thinking in English so that we can be built up directly from her words. Verses 14, 15, 17, it's the same story with praying, singing, and even thanking in tongues. There's no exceptions within the church meeting. Plain, clear, intelligible words that build each other up are better every time. Verse 16, how can anybody say a hearty agreeing amen to your great prayer if they don't know what's been said? Uh, Verse 17, the other person can't be built up uh, there's no building going on. That's that same logic again. You may as well be, you may well be thanking God very much in your own world, but why are we here? Why are we here? For me to have my own spiritual experience? Keep the tongue at home, says Paul. But this explains why we do lots of the things we do the way here at St. Helens. Uh, We give a large amount of our time every week to preaching, uh, and I try my very best to be as clear as possible. We want the clearest speaking so that minds can be engaged and we can think about it afterwards. Uh, It's why we sometimes have a question time, like today, uh, so we can ask questions of the crazy thing that I said, um, to think carefully and clearly together. It's why we have prayers, uh, which, can have, uh, which have been clearly planned uh, so that you can say a clear and hearty amen to them. It's why we try and sing songs with clear words so that we can build each other up. It's why we try and enable as much time afterwards as speaking the truth in love to each other about what's being said. It's prophecy time. It's why we have prophecy groups every single week Although this week's our last one of the academic year, we're going to be doing a book club so that we can do more prophecy in that. And then there'll be Summerlink as well midweek. As many opportunities as humanly possible for us to prophesy to each other. We always want to prioritize intelligible, clear, upbuilding words whenever we meet together. Now, don't mishear me. Paul is not against tongues. Do it at home. Do it to your heart's content. Do it lots. It builds you up. It's a good thing to do. And what is more, if two or three people all speak the same tongue, if they, if they, they were to gather together, say in a French group, uh, then that tongue is no longer a tongue, but a prophecy group, isn't it? You've made yourself a prophecy group. Yet when we are all together, like now, Paul's logic is inescapable. Look at verses 18 to 19. Paul isn't speaking from a place of envy, is he? He speaks in tongues more than any of them. But the point is, what's better? What's better? Five clear, upbuilding, intelligible words, or 10,000 in a tongue? And the point isn't even one sentence versus about two hours of speaking. That's roughly how long it would take me to say about 10,000 words in one of my sermons. Uh, No, Paul Paul is saying here the largest possible number with just one word in Greek. It's hyperbole. Uh, Lots of dictionaries actually translate this word um, as innumerable. 
or uncountable. Uh, I wonder then if we should say uh, one sentence uh, that we can all understand versus infinite in tongues. Infinite in tongues. So if you turn to your neighbors afterwards and say, uh, Jesus Christ is your Lord, that's five words, um, it would be better than all the words you could ever say in a tongue. That's what he's trying to say. So tongues versus prophecy, what should win when you gather together? Answer, prophecy should win every time. Because with believers, it builds because it's clear. But what's more, verses 20 to 25, much more briefly now, it's also better for the unbelievers. It's better for the unbelievers. I wonder what you hope for when unbelievers gather with us here at 10 a.m. Paul is only interested in one thing for unbelievers, conviction. Verse 24, conviction will reveal, verse 25, the secrets of their hearts, and so they'll fall on their face, and they'll worship God, declaring he's really among you, i.e. that the Spirit lives in each one of our hearts. Here at the 10, we just love having people who don't know Jesus yet, but wouldn't it be an awful thing if they ever left thinking, I didn't understand a word of that? Or at the end of verse 23, they're out of their minds. Wouldn't that be awful? Uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm always interested in what unbelievers think when they come here. Uh, what do they make of us? What do they make of us? Uh, maybe you're here as an unbeliever today, and you think today has all been very strange indeed. Uh, please come and tell me that. Please come and tell me. Uh, see, an unbeliever might be offended uh, by the truth, what we're saying here from the Bible. I actually think that's a really good thing. It's causing them to feel convicted. They've heard what's being said from the Bible. And we pray that in time that might call them to account, verse 24. But if there are other things which get in the way of that, then we really need to stop doing them, don't we? We really need to stop doing them. Let's talk to each other and keep our meetings as outsider-friendly as humanly possible. Are we gathering? Are we a gathering of people in our right minds, in full control of ourselves? Is there any whipping up of emotions as we try and affect each other? The observant um, amongst you might have spotted that I've skipped over verse 21. Verse 21 is tricky, but it's very challenging. It's a quote from Isaiah. And this is an outrageously bold quote from Paul to give to Corinth. Remember, Corinth are the only church in the New Testament that seemed to be obsessed with tongues. They thought tongues were proof that God really likes them. Paul quotes, though, from Isaiah 28. And this is a moment in Israel's history when God said, I'm going to send you people who speak in tongues. That's what God's going to do. And if you're in Corinth, perhaps you'd be thinking, oh, goody, this is great. Gift of the Spirit. Here we go. This is going to be a great time. It was actually in Isaiah, that strange tongue is Assyrian. Assyrian. And the reason they'll be hearing Assyrian is because they refused to listen to God's prophet, Isaiah. Uh, they found Isaiah far too simple, far too clear, actually, far too intelligible. 
Uh, they thought Isaiah was like baby talk, and they wanted more complexity. So God gives it to them. He gives them exactly what they wanted, a tongue, words that they can't understand. So Assyria comes and judges them and enslaves them. Tongues and Isaiah were a sign of judgment. Judgment. I wonder how Corinth felt as they read that. And they joined the dots as to what they've been doing, speaking in tongues when the unbelievers were there. Well, they're heaping up judgment on them. It's death. Let's sum up as we close. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. Pursue love. Hunt down love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. If we are to pursue love, We'll couple that with an earnest desire for all things spiritual. That means we'll be zealous, eager for the things of the Spirit. And that means a major prioritization for building the body at all costs. Uh, building the body will dominate everything that we ever do. It's the thing that will be keeping us maturing. Remember last week? And chapter 14, verse 20, what Amy said, uh, we need to grow up until that last day. So what do you want? What do you want for? What are your desires? Are we yearning for spiritual gifts? All of them, administration, hospitality, tongues even. But what are we looking to use every single time we meet together? The clear, building up words. Prophecy is clear an incredible gift for us to all yearn for and to practice using together. And let's make sure it's at the heart of all our conversations. And let's take every opportunity we can to prophesy. Let's pray as we close. Gracious Father, thank you so much that in your kindness, you give us gifts wonderful, amazing spiritual gifts. And we pray, Father, that we would use them rightly. Help us pursue love. Help us never forget that dominant theme as to how we use our gifts. And Father, we do pray that we would be earnestly desiring to be zealous for all the spiritual gifts, especially that we may be prophesying. We pray that for your glory. Amen. Oh,